And if you have a Bible, if you take it and open it now to the book of Luke, we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 20. This is on page 46 in the New Testament in the Pewback Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, I would encourage you to take and open there so you can quickly refer back to whatever is getting referenced. But if you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, I would encourage you to take that home with you as our congregation's gift to you. Now, suppose you're sitting in the doctor's office after what you thought was a routine checkup. You hadn't been feeling all that great, but honestly, who had in 2020? You tried different weight loss programs and exercise regimens. You tried going to bed earlier. You tried just not watching the news. But nothing seemed to help. And so you decided just to chalk it up to getting older. But now from across the desk, your doctor looks you in the eyes and says those words no one wants to hear. It's cancer. How would you feel? For many of you, how did you feel? Because you have had this experience. You'd be shocked, devastated. Maybe a little skeptical at first. But then after that moment that feels like forever, he says, this kind is terminal only if left untreated. If you will let this particular doctor who's coming into town soon operate on you, there is a 100% recovery rate. How would you feel then? (laughs) You might have said you could have led with that, Doc. But wouldn't that good news totally change your outlook on the bad news? Well, it would if you believed your doctor. Well, now in our text this morning, John has been charged by God to deliver a crushing truth. God's own people need saving. They have soul cancer that if left untreated would end in their eternal judgment. But what made God's, John's message good news was that he was preparing the way for the one who came to heal all those who would come to him in faith. Those that believed John's message were embracing their need of a Savior, which meant that they were prepared to look for him when he came. And in our case, we know that Jesus has already come. But lest you be confused, our posture of looking to Jesus in our need, even now as Christians, many of us, hasn't changed. And so let's pray and ask that as we work through this text, God would help us to understand our great and continuing need of Jesus. Father, we ask that as we open your word, that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, even as John prepared the people for Jesus, that we would sense afresh our great need of the blood of Jesus. Father, that there is nothing but the blood of Jesus 
that can make us whole. Help us to see that and feel that and to embrace that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 1 through 6 of Luke chapter 3, we see that we have to savor, excuse me, we have to see our sin before we can savor our Savior. They don't all alliterate like this, so don't worry. We have to see our sin before we can savor our Savior. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconius, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and every hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. During the reign of many powerful men, the word of God came to John. Now, John was a nobody in the eyes of the world. There had been some hoopla over his birth, as we saw earlier from Luke's gospel, but he'd long since tapered off into obscurity. We know from Matthew's account that he wore a camel's hair garment with a leather belt, and he lived off the land, which included eating bugs. But being out there in the wilderness, away from the limelight, the commission came from God on high for John to begin preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we'll look at what repentance is in the next section, but before we get there, I I want to highlight what repentance means. Repentance means that we've sinned. And we've all heard the expression, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, the need that we all have to repent comes as the consequence for our brokenness. And John's message indicted everyone because all of them and all of us after them have sinned against the God who created us. We are all sinners. Now, I am well aware that this is an obvious point for so many of us, if not most of us, but we can't assume that it is to everyone. In fact, we live in a culture that assures us that you're okay and I'm okay. The idea that we are accountable to one God and deserving of His eternal wrath because of our disobedience to His Word is totally out of step with the drumbeat of our society. But here's the thing. The same was true for John's audience. Now to be sure, they use different reason than our culture does to reject their need of repentance as John points out in verse 8. But the rejection is the same. We might feel like we're the first ones to be living at a time among a people that are offended by the call to repentance. But we're not. 
John's message was offensive to his own people as well as to the governing authorities, as we're going to see in verses 19 and 20. The call to repent has always been and will always be offensive, which begs the question, why start there? Why would God give John this inherently offensive message to deliver to the people? Well, we're given the reason in verse 4, to prepare the way before the Lord. And Luke has already told us in the words from Gabriel back in chapter 1, verse 17, and then from the words of John's father, Zechariah, in chapter 1, verse 76, that this would be John's role, to prepare the way before the Lord. But here Luke connects, connects this purpose for John to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. John functioned as the herald going before the royal caravan, so to speak, proclaiming, make way for King Jesus. But there's something striking about the way that John prepares the people for the Messiah. You see, if the President of the United States, or if some foreign dignitary, was coming to Camden, Arkansas, and you got word that would be stopping in your house, you'd roll out the metaphorical red carpet. You'd clean your house from top to bottom. You'd bring out your nicest dishes and put on your best clothes. You'd prepare by making yourself presentable in order to honor the person coming. But the way we make ourselves presentable to the King of Kings isn't by trying to make ourselves appear better than we really are, it's not by putting our best foot forward. It's the opposite. It's fully agreeing with God that we are broken, sinful, depraved creatures. The way we prepare for Jesus isn't by trying to meet His needs, but by embracing our need of Him. That's why John emphasizes the people's sinful condition and their need of forgiveness. If we don't see our sin, friends, we won't see our need for a Savior. And because of that, where there's no awareness, there can be no conviction of sin. And where there is no conviction of sin, there can be no salvation from sin. If we don't come to see our sin for what it is, if we don't begin to hate it, for separating us from the Lord, then we won't be saved. It's only once we've understood that we've broken God's law and deserve His eternal punishment that we're at a point to look to Jesus to save us. It's only those who recognize their sin who can see their need to repent and be forgiven. We have to see our sin before we can savor our Savior. In fact, it actually dishonors the Lord 
when we try to make ourselves presentable by superficially putting on airs, he sees through our facades. He knows the darkness of our hearts. It's pride that entices us to try to appear better to the Lord than we really are. And it's also foolishness because he knows us better than we even know ourselves. And that's why he sent his son. So to my non-Christian friends here, I wonder if you've ever thought that Christians think they're better than you. Well, I'm sure we could find exceptions to this, but let me just say, categorically speaking, we don't if we're in our right minds. We're every bit as needy as you because we're all sinners. The reason John confronted the people with their sin and the reason that we're called to do the same with yours isn't hatred. It's not bigotry. It's love. We desperately want you to know the salvation that we know through faith in Christ. As God in the flesh, Jesus lived the sinless and righteous life the law required. He died as a sacrificial substitute for the sins, for sins under the wrath of God that his people deserved. But then he was raised to life again to prove that his atonement had been accepted on behalf of all those who will ever repent of their sins and believe in him. So let me encourage you. You don't need to clean yourself up to get your life in order before you come to Jesus. As the Lord opens your eyes to see your own sin, like John here, he is doing it in order to cause you to feel your need of the Savior. And that Savior has already been provided. So if you're in the valley of despair and you feel hopeless, if you're on the mountaintop of success and you feel untouchable, if your way to this point has been crooked or your past has been rough, the grace of God can reach you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus stands ready to save you if you will come to him in faith. As the old hymn says so well, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. If you would like to talk to someone more about this, I would be glad to talk to you at the end of this service. But now, my burden, church, is that you would think this doesn't apply to you, to us. Loved ones, we never outgrow our need of Jesus. There's never a moment in our lives as believers that we are ever less needy of the gospel. And that means, just like it's wrong and harmful for unbelievers to pretend they're better than they are, it's wrong for us too. By the grace of God, we know better. But if we're honest, we'd have to confess that within so many of us, there is this whisper that says we can't go to Jesus in our sin. 
It tells us his grace was sufficient for our past sins. But now that we know him, it's not sufficient for the sins that we're facing now. But the truth is, it's our daily reminder of our own sin that makes our daily dependence on Jesus all the sweeter. So far from being something that should keep us from Christ, our awareness of our sinfulness is intended to drive us to Christ. And if that's ever not the voice that's speaking in your head, you can know farewell that that is not Jesus telling you, stay away. That is the evil one. That is your sin. Jesus came to save sinners. Our sin is why He came. And when we believe that, church, then we'll start walking in the light together. We'll confess our sins to one another. We'll rebuke each other in compassion. We'll listen for the Word of God to tell us what we're doing wrong and not just to tell us what we're doing right. We'll embrace the reality that as we see our sin, we're being given the opportunity to savor our Savior. But lest we misunderstand this as meaning that we should be content in our sin, let's look at what John taught about repentance in the next section. In verses 7-14, through we see recognizable repentance is the evidence of saving faith. Recognizable repentance is the evidence of saving faith. Pick up in verse 7 with me. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now what we see in these two paragraphs are different groups of people that needed to have John's message applied to them in different ways. I think the therefore from verse 7 connects these people with the geographical terms from Isaiah's prophecy that Luke just quoted. Valleys, mountains, and hills, as well as crooked and rough places. They're all different forms of terrain, but they all needed to be made ready for Jesus. The message is the same, but its specific applications were as different as the people hearing it. And that's a good reminder to us, I think, that we need to treat each person that we share the gospel to as an individual. Every sinner has the same problem, that's true, and there's also the same solution in Jesus Christ, but we need to start by listening to where they are. 
It seems clear to me that the first group of people John addresses in verses 7 through 9 are represented by the high mountains and hills that needed to be brought low. These were descendants of Abraham. But John implies that they were actually sons of Satan, the one who took the form of a snake, a a viper in the garden back in Genesis 3. And Jesus makes the same assertion even more directly in John 8, 44. But did you catch who these charges were made against? Luke tells us that John said this, quote, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. In that passage I referenced from John 8, John tells us that Jesus said it to the Jews who had believed him. Friends, wanting to be baptized or saying you believe in Jesus aren't evidences of saving faith when they are alone. John knew that there were some people within the crowds coming to be baptized who had no business being baptized. If it was the act of baptism that saved them or at least prepared them to be saved, then John would have been trying to get as many people as possible into the water regardless of what they thought about it. But John's baptism, which we'll see in the next section, was different from Jesus' baptism, was like Jesus' baptism in that it was intended to be an outward expression of an inward change. I take the somewhat confusing rhetorical question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, to mean who told you the act of baptism would save you? And the implied answer from John would have been, you definitely haven't heard that from me. You see, John realized that some who came, hadn't changed. They were still putting their hope of salvation in their genealogy. If they continued to trust in their bloodlines instead of the blood of an acceptable sacrifice on their behalf, they would be condemned forever, even as Israelites. Not all Israel was a part of the true Israel of God. John confronts them with the truth that being members of the covenant people of God in name only would not save them from the wrath to come. True recipients of the covenantal promises of God are those who walk in repentance and faith. The same is true for us. If we have prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or been baptized or joined a church, even this church, in the past without bearing fruit of repentance in the present, then we have no confidence that we're in Christ. Being baptized with water or any of those other religious expressions, can't save you any more than being ethnically Jewish can save you. 
without an internal change, external acts of obedience are meaningless. Repentance is the external evidence of inward salvation. It isn't the root of our faith, but it is the fruit of our faith. And as John says in verse 9, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, it's important that we understand John wasn't turning anyone away from the kingdom of God. Any more than we would once to know some, any more than we would be doing if we wanted to know someone who was coming to be baptized. Or any more than we would be doing if we were to remove someone from church membership who wasn't persevering in repentance. What John was doing was discerning whether or not their commitment to God was credible. That means believable. And as a church, we're called to do the same thing. So far from being harsh or judgmental, pointing out a lack of repentance is actually speaking the truth in love. There are very few things more dangerous to an unbeliever than the false assurance that can come from committing external acts of obedience without a changed heart. Now, I belabor this point because I'm convinced many within even our own denomination have lost sight of this point. But it is not at all my intention to discourage those of you with tender consciences who feel like often you're not making any progress in, in your sanctification. Brothers and sisters, our struggling to repent evidences the Spirit's work in our lives. So the call to you would be to find strength in the midst of the fight that you're fighting at all. I'm not talking about those who are fighting, those struggling to see the progress they want. I'm talking about people who have stopped fighting altogether. They have laid down their arms. They've taken off their armor. When we stop fighting, it signals a problem. And in fact, probably what strikes us most about John's instructions to the group of people in verses 10 through 14 is just frankly how obvious his calls to repentance are. <laughs> I mean, if I was to sum up what he tells them, share your stuff and don't steal other people's stuff is basically what he tells them. It's not spiritual rocket science. In many ways, it's ordinary and simple. And that was true for even the most culturally despised and rejected sinners of John's days, the tax collectors and soldiers. Notice, John doesn't even command the tax collectors or soldiers to abandon their posts. He didn't say, totally quit your job. You're linked up with the Romans, so you can't possibly worship the Lord. That's not what he says. He tells them to serve where they are with honesty and integrity for the good of others. Friends, God isn't out to trick us in his calls for repentance. The repentance that God requires is both recognizable and reachable for us. 
every saved sinner is capable of the repentance God requires of us in his word. Now we have to work at it. We have to battle every day. But it's not the carrot in front of the horse dangling that we want to get us to go forward but we'll never reach it. It may seem beyond us, but God has given us his spirit in order that all he requires of us may be accomplished in us. And as we commit day after day to a lifestyle of repentance, the saving faith that God has given us will be recognizable to those around us. That's why we join churches, friends. Assurance is a community project, someone has said. We are here to help encourage one another in the faith so that when we see even little bits of evidence of spiritual fruit, we point it out to each other. Say, brother, I see this fruit of the Spirit. Sister, I see this beautiful fruit of God in your life. And when we don't see it, then we in love pursue that brother, pursue that sister. We don't know their hearts. God does. But we confront them with it to tell them this concerns us. We love you. We want you to see your need for repentance. And we want to encourage you in that great work as an evidence of faith in your life. And we see the reason why this matters in our last section where we see our response to Jesus now reveals his response to us forever. Our response to Jesus now reveals his response to us forever. Pick up in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. The people surrounding John's ministry were struggling not to view John as the one they've been waiting for. But Luke uses John's own words to make it clear that John and his baptism weren't the goal. As great and as significant as John was, he was still a member of the old covenant that was about to be superseded by the new. If you're up to date on the Bible reading plan, you'll see this in Luke 7. John's ministry wasn't to stand in the place of the coming Messiah, but to point ahead to him. But if the people thought John's message, John's message was offensive and divisive, then they wouldn't know what to do with Jesus' message. John knew Jesus would bring judgment. And he explained in verse 16 that he baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is the second of three references to fire in this passage. And the other two in verse 9 and verse 17 are references clearly to eternal judgment. 
The final judgment John anticipated was secured with the coming of Jesus, but it won't be fulfilled, we know, until Christ's second coming. However, our response to Jesus now reveals His response to us forever. And Jesus explained what John meant later in Luke 12, 49-53 when He said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You see, the gospel message is a winnowing fork that divides the wheat from the chaff. The Lord came to separate His people from the lost. Our faith in Him and His Spirit in us makes us beautifully distinct from the world. In fact, the clearer we contrast with the world, the more helpful we are to the world. The distinction between us now is meant to serve as a warning of the distinction that will be made between us forever based on how we respond to Jesus. Christians lose their way when we start trying to be as similar to the world as possible. No one buys a whole house generator to walk around with the lights off when the power's out. In the same way, local churches are incredibly unhelpful to the lost in their communities when they don't address open, unrepentant sin among their members. Treating sin seriously is one of the ways that we show love to the lost. But now, lest we think that we'll, they'll always love us for it, that they'll be able to pick up on that distinction and just come and pat us on the back and tell us how grateful they are for us, we come to verses 18 through 20. John spoke the truth to those around him. He told them that they were sinners. He told them that they needed to repent. He told them that if they didn't repent, then they would go to hell. Now, some might label John as a grumpy nomad who just angrily yelled at people and thought he was better than everyone else. But that's not the John of the Bible. John told the people the bad news about their sin in order to set the stage for the good news of God's forgiveness. It would be hateful to tell people how awful they are without telling them how they can be saved just like it would be a miserable source of malpractice for a doctor who knows there'd be a cure, a 100% cure, to tell someone you have cancer and not tell them how they can be healed. 
But the reality is, as we look at John's life, even though he was speaking the truth in love to them, they hated him for it. John understood that before unrepentant sinners could have faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ, they needed to be confronted with the truth about their condition. And the way he was received was by many, including the religious leaders, rejecting his claims, but then also by those in power, Herod being one, imprisoning him, and later we learn in Luke chapter 9, eventually beheading him. John spoke the truth in love, and people hated him for it. Now, in this way, the persecution and suffering John endured for his unwavering commitment to God's will for his life foreshadows the one he precedes. And Jesus would come to save sinners, to seek to save the lost. And they killed him for it. And we, if we would have been there, would have killed him for it too. But my concern is, as believers living today, we can be lulled into thinking our experience should be different from these. That our experience should be different from John's. That our experience should be different from Jesus. If we are following Jesus, it stands to reason that we will walk down the same path He walked, which led to all kinds of persecution and suffering and even His death. Christians, we are not promised an easy life on this earth. We are not promised to live a long, comfort-filled, pain-free life. We're not promised to be unaffected by the evil around us. Sometimes things will go bad for us if we're faithful. But hardships don't always mean we have done something wrong. It doesn't mean that God is trying to put us on a different course. It could mean, it often does mean, that we are exactly where God wants us to be. But the good news is, God controls these difficulties and designs them to make our light shine before men so that they might give glory to Him. Often our hardships indicate that we are doing something right in a world that hates the light. And even if we lose our lives like John and like so many martyrs who have gone before us, we can face our end on this earth with the confidence that because we have received Jesus through faith now, He will receive us into heaven with Him forever. So then may we be a people who never forget our need of Jesus. May we be a people who always remember that in His love, His gospel meets our every need. Let's pray. Father, would You help us not to shrink back from our need, but to lean into it.
to embrace it with a recognition that you have done all that your law required to restore us into right fellowship with you. Help us to rejoice in that reality. Help us to live in light of that reality as we speak the truth and love to those around us and to one another that you would get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.